This morning it comes from Mark chapter 14, verses 12 to 25. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when, the, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping the bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning again, City Church. As we gather together this morning, uh, we're going to continue a series that we've been working on for the past few months in the book of Mark, and this series will continue all the way up till Easter, uh, which just is a couple of weeks away, so I'm excited about that. Uh, we'll have some announcements about what's going to be happening in Holy Week coming up pretty soon. We're going to have a normal Tenebrae service that we had last year, as well as the uh, early morning, uh, Easter morning service uh, out at Shelby Park, and then our regular Easter service as well. So uh, please keep that in mind as we uh, close in on this really special time. Uh, and we've been doing that not only in kind of in a larger sense, but we've also been doing it as we've been walking through the book of Mark. Uh, the last several chapters, uh, in the last several weeks that we've been looking at this book, uh, what we've noticed is that it covers uh, a large portion, in fact, a third of the entire book of Mark covers this last week of Jesus' life, and that's what we've been working through and working our way through. Uh, this is the final week. In fact, it's the final night as we've come to. Uh, Jesus is going to be arrested that very night, and the very next day he's going to be crucified. And so this gives you a little bit of the context of where we are in the midst of this. And, and what were we going to be talking about today? And I, I wish we had a larger crowd, which wasn't spring break, because uh, this is, while everything in God's Word is really important, uh, this is an opportunity for us to think deeply about something that we do on a regular basis and is very familiar to us in many ways, uh, but is also very mysterious and confusing in other ways. And that is the Lord's Supper, right? We partake of it every week at the end of our service. We, we are very adamant about that. Uh, but at the same time, it is something that can be confusing and uh, cannot, it, it, oftentimes it's difficult to wrap your mind around what exactly we're doing and why we're doing this. Is it just something that we're doing for fun? that we do as a community together, um, or is there something that's really much deeper in that and much more profound and much more important going on uh, as the Lord calls us to partake in this regular meal? 
Um, and I would argue that there is. You know, in Madeline Engel's book, uh, Wrinkle in Time, I don't know if you've ever read that or seen the, the movies. The movie is not exactly like the book. I'm going to warn you, uh, as many things go. But the book is great, and I would encourage you to read that. Uh, but the premise of that story, and I'm not going to go into all of it, is that there's a father in this story who's disappeared for five years, and he's disappeared because he's discovered a new planet, and he's been able to travel to that planet because he's discovered what he calls a tesseract, and that is uh, a wrinkle in time. It's where time and space have folded in on itself and made it possible to travel rapidly, uh, both, and it's kind of collapsed the idea of past, present, and future together. Um, and the entire rest of the story, his children set off on this grand adventure to find him. And it's a wonderful book. I would encourage you to read it, but I'm not going to go into anything else than that. What I want to point out is that, in many ways, the Lord's Supper is like a wrinkle in time. It is a wrinkle in the fabric of the universe in which the past, the present, and the future of God's goodness is brought together in a really powerful and a really beautiful way that not only convicts us, uh, but draws us into Jesus, unites us to him, builds us up in him, and then encourages us, strengthens our faith, and motivates us to serve him in all of life. And that's exactly what I want us to, to look at today. And I want to split it up in these different categories. I want to look at a glimpse of how this uh, great supper uh, looks and shows us our past, a glimpse of how it actually informs our present, and then a glimpse of what it means to uh, have this supper point us forward to a great future and how that impacts our lives as well. But before we do that, uh, let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us this morning and bless our time in his word. Most Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We praise you for this opportunity to be together. And we pray that uh, you would remember your promises, that as we gather together, that you would open our hearts and our minds, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and that you would show us wonderful things in your word, O oh Lord, and transform us by your grace. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, so, first of all, I want to think about this kind of concept of a glimpse of the past and how the Lord's Supper does that. But before we do that, we have to get a little bit of a context for what's going on here in our passage. If you look with me, if you have your Bibles with you at verse 12, what we see here is that Jesus' disciples and Jesus himself are preparing for a meal. And it's not just any meal, it's the Passover meal, uh, an annual feast celebrating God's salvation of his people uh, of their freedom or their release from slavery, their salvation from slavery, as they had lived in slavery in Egypt for over 400 years. Um, in the book of Exodus, we're told this story. In fact, we covered a little bit of it last week uh, when my friend Ken Leggett was here preaching for us, uh, where uh, Moses was, uh, met God or God spoke to him through a burning bush and called him to go to Egypt, right? And in that time, uh, there uh, the Lord went with him and actually brought ten great plagues upon Egypt uh, in order to convince the Pharaoh to let his people go from that land so that they could go to the promised land. And the final of these plagues, we are told, is uh, a plague of death in which the angel of the Lord came um, and actually brought judgment on all of those and all of the firstborn sons of every household uh, that did not do something really weird. And that's something really weird is that they had to slaughter or kill a perfect spotless lamb and then put the blood of that lamb above the doorframe of their house. Um, and the warning that came with this was this. God's wrath would not pass over anyone, including the Jews, if they didn't do this. 
The only way anyone would escape God's judgment was to kill this lamb and then put their trust in the Lord and his provision instead of themselves. And as a result, any person, Jew or other, that did not take shelter under the blood of the lamb that night and put their faith instead in their ethnicity or nationality or moral attainments or goodness for their own salvation would wake up the next morning bitterly disappointed. Because what we see in this great story is that every household in Egypt that very night woke up the next morning either with a dead lamb or a dead son. And it was only those who trusted in God's grace's uh, substitutionary grace, substitutionary provision of a lamb that woke to discover that the angel of death had passed over them. This is where we get the word for this great feast, Passover, right? And it's a celebration of that reality of what the Lord has done. And it was through this incredible substitutionary provision of God's grace that God saved his people from their physical slavery in Egypt and began leading them to a land of, uh, of milk and honey, we're told, a promised land in which they would dwell with the Lord forever. And what we need to understand here is this exodus was at that time and throughout most of the history of God's people up until the New Testament was the defining moment in the history of God's people. It was the biggest event. It was the thing that framed their identity and who they were. It framed their understanding of God in many different ways. It was the defining moment in the history of Israel. Therefore, what we see in Exodus 12, as we work through that story, is that God commands his people that once a year they're supposed to celebrate a feast, a meal, that was a representation, a memorial, of what God had done for them in leading them out of Egypt and freeing them from their slavery to the Egyptians. And in order to ensure that the people remembered their past correctly, the meal had to be prepared in a very specific way with very specific words that were supposed to be said over the meal um, and had a very, some very specific forms and uh, ceremonies that had to be done within this great meal. And that had been done literally for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And in order for them to assure this, they actually wrote all this down and they have a form. And when I lived in Boston, some of our, some of our really close friends of Kelly and I were, were a Jewish family and they had us over for the Passover meal one time and they had a book and you would actually read through very specifically how everything was supposed to work. And it, it told you the form, it told you what you were supposed to do at different times. And so you had this kind of clear reality in that. And in this, the different elements were really important. Uh, one, uh, it included a presider uh, who would stand up in front of everyone who was at the meal and explain exactly what was going on, retell the story of the Exodus, and explain how we were everybody was supposed to participate in the meal. Uh, it included the eating of unleavened bread, and that's a weird thing. Why would you eat unleavened bread? Well, uh, it represented the haste at which God's people had to leave Egypt when God saved them during this time, because as soon as the angel of the Lord uh, killed a lot of the firstborn sons during that time, Pharaoh very quickly decided that he wanted rid of the Israelites, and so he basically told them to leave immediately. So they packed everything up very quickly and left, and they didn't have time for their bread to actually rise. And so this was a picture of the haste that they had to have as they were leaving, and the affliction that they went through as they wandered in the wilderness on their way to the Promised Land. Uh, this was the bread of life as well that sustained them and sustained God's people during that time. It also included uh, four cups of wine, we are told, which represented the four promises that God had made to his people during this time in Exodus 6. That was salvation from their slavery in Egypt, 
the redemption of God's by God's divine power, the renewed relationship that they had been given with God through this event, and the new life that they would have in the new land, pointing forward to this promised land that God was leading them to. And finally, it included a main course, a spotless lamb. Uh, if you remember, in order to have the Passover to actually take effect, uh, the people had to find a spotless lamb, they had to sacrifice it, and they had to put its blood above the doorpost. Then they would roast that lamb and actually eat it as part of the meal for this Passover feast. And so what we have here is this representation of this substitutionary lamb that had sheltered them from God's wrath in this way. And so this was a main part of the meal. Now, given all this, it's not surprising to us as we get to this point in the story of Jesus in the book of Mark that he and his disciples are preparing to celebrate this feast, right? Um, it is something that God had commanded in the Old Testament would be a festival, a feast that would be celebrated throughout all time and through all generations. And so exactly what we see here is that that is what they're preparing for. In, in verse 22, Mark tells us that as they were eating, Jesus was actually the presider of the meal. So he took on, as you might expect, being Jesus, uh, the role of presiding over the meal. He stood up and he began to explain the meal to them, just like you would have seen throughout hundreds of years of doing this meal. But instead of using the prescribed words, what we see at this point is something that's shocking that happens. Instead of saying, this is the bread of our affliction, which is part of the prescribed Passover meal, Jesus says, take and eat, this is my body. And instead of saying, this is the cup of God's promised redemption, as they went through the four wines, Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, which has been poured out for many for the remission of sins. Take and drink all of it in remembrance of me. Now, we need to understand at this point, Jesus' disciples would have been utterly shocked. You need to picture them with their jaws on the floor, right? This was a change in the form of how God's people had done things for so long that it was unbelievably shocking to them that Jesus would have done this. Jesus had just changed the words of the Passover meal, and he changed the form of the meal as well that God had commanded them to do. But that's not all. It doesn't stop there. There's something else that changed in this meal as well that Jesus does. And I want to see if you actually notice it. If you notice reading through this, as I've talked about the Passover meal, there's something really significant that is missing in every account, all four Gospels, as well as in 1 Corinthians 11. You know what's missing here? The lamb. There's no main course. They never get to the main course very important to understand. This is the significant omission in this great feast that they're having together. And the question is, why? Why would they admit this? Why would Jesus admit this? You know, Tim Keller uh, once said uh, that the Exodus story begs an incredibly important question. And that is, how in the world could, a, could the death of a woolly little quadruped ever save God's people from the judgment of God? Have you ever asked yourself that question? And you may not have been around Christianity very much, but if you have, and you've studied at all the Old Testament, the sacrificial system and the Passover in the Old Testament, uh, this is a question that should, everybody should have to ask at some point. The idea that the sacrifice of a lamb, a woolly little quadruped, would actually solve the problem of God's people and their sin and restore them to right relationship with God is a really crazy idea. It's insane. How in the world could this happen? 
And the answer, what, what we get in the New Testament and what Jesus is beginning to teach us here in this passage is that it couldn't. It never could. It was always meant as a sign pointing forward to a greater reality. And that should add, cause us to ask another question, and that is, well, what is the greater reality that it's pointing forward to? Isaiah 53 says this, when Isaiah is speaking of the coming of the great Messiah. He was oppressed and afflicted, but he opened not his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He poured out his life unto death and was counted with the transgressors. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So thousands of years before the coming of Jesus, you begin to get this idea of the Messiah as, as a lamb. And then in 1 John, well, I mean in John 1, we see John the Baptist. As he sees Jesus is coming to him, as he's baptizing those in the Jordan River, and as he sees Jesus coming, he cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Over and over again throughout the scriptures and throughout the New Testament, you get these repeated refrains of Jesus being referred to as the Lamb of God or the Lamb. And in the book of Revelations, uh, the great picture of Jesus on the throne is not of him as a man, is one of him as a lamb who has been slain. And he is the one who is going to rule for all eternity. So you get this incredible picture. And what we need to understand here is that there's no lamb in this meal because Jesus is the lamb who has come. He is the true and greater reality that the Passover lamb was always pointing forward to. His death on the cross is the true and greater substitutionary sacrifice. His blood is the true and greater shelter that God's people have been given from God's judgment in this world. And make no mistake, God's salvation of his people from slavery in Egypt was an incredible event. But it was nothing compared to what Jesus came to do. He is the true and greater Moses who has come into this world to rescue his Peter from their, people from their greater sin, and that is sin itself. This is what all of Scripture has been pointing forward to. It's not just slavery or the suffering that we experience in this world, that there is something greater that is the cause of all of those things, and Jesus came to deal with that and the very sins in our hearts. What we see is that in the beginning of time in Genesis 3, uh, it reflects even the nature of our very fall into sin. What, what happened in the beginning of time, right? God put Adam and Eve in a garden. He gave them a tree, and then the devil came, and he took an apple or pomegranate, depending on what, you, uh, what reading you do, um, and he said what to them? Take and eat, right? This is going to give you everything that you ever wanted. And what we see and what we're told throughout the rest of the scriptures is that was an incredible act of mankind putting themselves in the place of God and trying to become gods themselves. But what we see here in Mark 14 is that when Jesus says, take and eat, God himself is putting himself in the place of man. And then he goes on to actually sacrifice himself for our salvation. He is the great lamb of God. And then Jesus goes on to say in the Lord's Supper, my body is like this bread. It is the bread of life that will sustain my people through their greatest afflictions. It will be broken, but in the breaking, this world will be mended. It will be torn, but in its tearing, your hearts will be healed. Moreover, this cup of wine, like my blood, is like my blood. My blood will be poured out, 
But even as my body is drained of life, your life itself will be filled with life. Only those who take shelter under my blood can truly escape God's judgment. Jesus is the ultimate substitutionary lamb. And his death is the central and climactic event, not only in Israel's history, but in the entire history of mankind. This is what the whole story is all about. This is what everything has been pointing forward to. It is the climax of all things. And Jesus here has come to do just that. You know, we have uh, oftentimes, if you've grown up in more traditional churches, like what we have oftentimes is a table by which we have the Lord's Supper on. We have two on the edges, but oftentimes uh, throughout church history, there's been an inscription on those. Does anybody remember what the inscription is? This do in remembrance of me, right? In this, we were called to a perpetual remembrance of the substitutionary sacrifice that God has made for us in Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in his salvation. And at this point, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul actually gives us a warning. And what this warning is, is that we must examine ourselves as we come to this reality, as we think about this great truth. Those who take the body and blood in an unworthy manner, he tells us, bring judgment on themselves. Now, what does he mean by this, unworthy? We talk about this every week. What I do up front before we take the Lord's table is uh, traditionally called fencing the table. And part of that is kind of an explanation about who should and who shouldn't come, right? And what do I say every week? I say, this is not a Presbyterian table. It's not a city church table. It's a table for all of those who have put their hope alone in Jesus Christ for their salvation. So the idea of coming in an unworthy manner is the very core idea of coming in the original sin, that we are trying to make ourselves into God, that we are trying to save ourselves through our own merit, through our own goodness, through our own actions, instead of trusting in Jesus Christ alone. And Paul warns us strictly that that is a huge mistake. He even says that there are those who have been falling asleep for, uh, for not taking this in the proper way. And he's not talking about taking a nap, I can guarantee you. It's an incredible warning in that way. And it's a call for us to remember the gospel. A call for us to remember that it is God's grace that saves, it's not our own merit. And so it's important for us to remember that at this time. So that gives us a little bit of a glimpse of the past aspect of the Lord's Supper, the context by which we're supposed to understand this. But I want to turn now to think a little bit about the present aspect, the present importance of what this supper does. And if you'll notice here in verses 22 and 24, uh, Jesus goes on to say, this is my body and this is my blood. Now, it's incredibly important to recognize here that he uses the word is here in the present tense. Now, at first glance, this may not seem like a big deal, right? You know, of course he says is, it's part of language. You know, he's just expressing himself in this way. Uh, but this little word, it's helpful to know, has been the crux of some of the greatest arguments and debates within Christian circles throughout Christian history or the church's history. Um, and uh, the crux of this debate has to do with the question, what exactly is happening when we partake of the Lord's Supper? And that's a good question, right? Are we just coming up? Uh, just doing, kind of going through the motions, or is something really happening here? Um, what are we actually eating and drinking as we participate in this meal, and what does that do to us and within us as we participate in this great festival or feast? Um, and there's a couple of different, you know, versions of this or ideas about this that have processed throughout history. Uh, some, mainly uh, within historically the Baptist church, uh, have come to this idea of this being just a metaphorical thing that we do. 
It's a memorial, and it's even called a memorial view. It's just a remembering of what happened. Nothing really that happens within the meal. It's just a memory or remembering of what happened. Um, but the problem with this is that in 1 Corinthians 11, as I've already said, Paul goes on to warn that those who mis misuse this meal or take it in an unworthy manner, there are serious consequences that come with that. So you can't just say that it's just remembering. You know, he, there's something greater going on there. There's something more important. There's something more uh, serious that is happening here. So we have to go on. And, and because of this, uh, you get others, mainly Catholics, who have come to believe in an approach to this, which is called transubstantiation. I know I'm using some big words here, but just stick with me. Promise that it's helpful in the long run. Uh, this view claims that when the priest actually blesses the Lord's table, as we're coming into the presence of the Lord, uh, that the, the bread and the wine actually turn into the physical uh, body and blood of Jesus Christ. Actually, physically become that. And that Jesus is actually, as we do that, re-crucified uh, or re-sacrificed every time we come together. So that's kind of that view. But the problem here is that when the scriptures speak of Christ's human body, they speak as if it's localized somewhere. You know, we, we talk about God as being a spirit who doesn't have a lot body like man, that he is everywhere at the same time. This is a theology 101 kind of thing. But when Jesus became a man, he actually localized himself, and he is in one place at one time now. And that is an important aspect to remember. And if we go on to remember something, he's now up in heaven at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He's physically present with him. And so... In order to say that his body has actually become present in the, in the bread and the wine as we participate in this meal throughout history has been argued that that's a confusion of the reality of his divinity and his humanity. And then it goes on to argue that by the very idea that we're re-sacrificing Christ every week, it denies what the scriptures tell us that Jesus, when he died on the cross, made a once and for all, for all sacrifice for our sins. This is not something that has to continue on. We have to remember it. We have to return to it always. But it is a one-time event that happened throughout history. Another view, which is mainly the Lutheran view throughout history, has been to believe in something that's called, in broad scopes, kind of idea of consubstantiation. And this view doesn't believe that the bread and the wine actually transform into Jesus' body and blood. But it does believe that his actual physical body and blood are present kind of in and around and underneath uh, the bread. Uh, I don't know exactly what that means, um, but it, it is a kind of a way that Luther was trying to make sense of the reality of what's happening. There. Um, and so they're denying the Catholic view, but they're also saying that Jesus is really present in his physical body there. Um, the problem here is that in John 6, Jesus turns to the crowd that he's been speaking to, and he says to them, only those who eat the flesh and drink my blood will have eternal life. And the crowd gets uh, super offended by this. They believe he's talking about cannibalism, right? Which makes perfect sense. What we're talking about this morning is super weird, right? Super weird. And the crowd gets offended by this, and actually a lot of them leave. But in verse 61, Jesus says, do you take offense of this? Is it the spirit that gives life? The flesh is of no help at all. And the words that I have spoken to you are both spirit and life. And so you've got to get the sense that there is a spiritual reality, a spiritual power that is at work within the context of the Lord's Supper as we protect it. 
And then this is where we get the traditional Reformed and Presbyterian view. It's okay to hold different views, but if you want to understand what we at City Church believe and Presbyterians have believed throughout history, uh, what we have believed is that Jesus' body and blood are really and truly present, and we really and truly partake of them when we take the Lord's Supper. But we do not believe that they are physically present, that it's not real blood and it's not real uh, body of Christ when we do that. What we believe is that the Holy Spirit, by his power, actually makes Jesus present with us and present in the bread and the wine as we partake. And therefore, we partake in kind of a mystical reality as he feeds us spiritually by this great meal. And he builds us up. And so we not only uh, uh, deny the Lutheran view, we also deny the Catholic view, but we also deny the Baptist view, right? This is not, you know, this is not like war zone area stuff, uh, but it is an important discussion about what's really going on there, and it's helpful to understand. We believe when we partake of this meal, when we eat this bread, we drink this wine, that Jesus is really present, that his body and his blood are, are really present in a powerful spiritual sense that actually feeds us and encourages us and builds us up in him. And the relationship between the sign that they are and the thing signified, which is the real thing, right, is actually manifested to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like the lamb in the Passover was a sign and pointing forward to a greater reality, this great feast is that as well. And the greater reality is the Holy Spirit connecting us to Jesus uh, in the midst of this meal. Now, why is all this important? Okay, that was uh, a theology lesson. You know, some of you are getting sleepy at this point and kind of getting drowsy in your seats. Why is this important? Well, according to the Bible, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, um, by his substitutionary sacrifice for us, we are actually united to him in a wonderful, miraculous way. Uh, our salvation is referred to all throughout the New Testament as our union with Christ. We're reunited with him, and therefore we partake in the benefits of what he has done, the blessings that he gives us, because we're united to him. In Luke 22, Jesus says, that this do in remembrance of me. And what we need to understand there is usually when we hear the word remembrance, what we're thinking about is memory, right? It's just kind of a remembering of something. Uh, but what that word actually is referring to in that passage and throughout the New Testament does not just mean to recall something. It actually is talking about members of a body, right? So we are being remembered into Christ. Our uh, we are, as a body, as a people, being united to him and remembered into his body. Uh, this is the opposite of what it means to dismember somebody, right? It's a knitting together. It's important for us to understand. In our salvation, we are remembered into Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is through this remembering or this reuniting that he reconnects us to the very source of God's spiritual and life-giving power in this world. Um, in the fall of mankind, we were separated from God based on our sin, we are told. And so we were separated from his power. We were separated from his spirit in that way. And, it, and we became spiritually dead, we are told. And through the spirit in the Lord's Supper and through the power of what Christ has done, we have been made alive again in Jesus Christ. We don't believe the supper actually does that, but it points us to the reality of what Jesus has done. Now, a helpful way to think about this is if you think about a lamp. You have a lamp in your house and it's not plugged into the wall it's accurate in many ways to say that it's dead right it has no power but if you plug that lamp into the wall what happens it is filled with power 
and your room is filled with light after that. And in a very similar way, we are told that the power of the Holy Spirit works within this to actually reconnect us. These are means of grace. By the means of grace, by prayer, by God's word, by the, the sacraments, we are actually plugged into God's power and then filled with light and life as he works within us to remind us of what he has done for us in his death and resurrection. And through this, we are told that we actually receive the benefits of his death and are united to him. That's not all. Because the Bible goes on to say that their union is not just an individualistic thing. We tend in our culture to see almost everything through an individualistic lens. But the scriptures actually say that as we're united to Jesus Christ, we're not only united to him individually, but as a community. God's church is his body. We are all united to one another by the power of the Spirit in this way. All Christians are remembered or grafted together into Christ's body in this way. And this is incredible. This means that the bond that we share as Christians with Jesus Christ, his church, is not uh, a genetic bond. It is not a racial bond. It is not a gender bond. It is not a national bond or a vocational bond or an economic bond. Our primary identity is now in Jesus Christ and being part of his body. It's a powerful thing, especially for the world that we live in today. Not to say that these other things are not important, right? But it is to say that it reorients us to our primary source of identity in this world, and that is our union and remembering in him. And in this mystical union of love forged in his blood, by his blood, we are actually given the power of God for the renewal of our souls. And Paul in Ephesus or in Ephesians says that Christ's death on the cross has actually broken down the barrier wall that separates us from one another. All the things that we do, uh, all these other things, ethnicity and race and gender and uh, economics and education, all these other things that separate us from one another, it breaks those things down and it reminds us of what is true in Jesus Christ. But here's the rub. At the end of Jesus' life on earth, we are told that he ascended into heaven and now he's actually at the right hand of God the Father, as we talked about. And because of this, uh, the question arises, how can we truly be united with him in that way? Well, before Jesus ascends, he tells us and describes to us in very specific ways in the book of Acts that it is better for him to leave us here because as he leaves, that the God himself would send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will mediate his presence to us. That is an incredible thing to think about. If you've ever wondered what the Holy Spirit does, right? If you've ever asked yourself that question, if you read throughout the scriptures, it's really difficult sometimes to get your head around what exactly he does as the third person of the Trinity. Well, he never points to himself. He never acknowledges himself. He always points to Jesus. He always, by his power, is drawing us to the gospel. And as he does that, he actually fills us with the power of the gospel and our union with Jesus Christ to actually encourage us in this way. The Holy Spirit mediates Jesus' presence in our lives, we are told. Uh, he bridges the gap between heaven and hell, or heaven and earth. And he is the mystical bond that unites us spiritually to God in this way. Throughout all time and space, authors throughout history often refer to this as the axis Monday. It is the, the world center. It is the place by which we are able to connect to the divinity of God in this way. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus actually dwells within us uh, and this is, you know, connects to the whole idea of the temple in the Old Testament, God's presence in the temple with us. Um, his presence with us, we actually become in the New Testament little temples of God in which God dwells in the presence of Jesus Christ is mediated by the Holy Spirit in everything that we do in life. 
And that is truly good news. Wonderful news. And as a result, when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are actually allow it, being allowed to have the veil pulled back a little bit. And we are actually able to see through the darkness of our world that often blinds us to this great truth of what really is true and get a glimpse of the spiritual bond that actually exists with our Savior. We are empowered by the Spirit to feed in Him and on Him by faith and on His blood, spiritually, not physically, as a sign that points us to the presence of Him in our lives. And as we eat and drink and partake and are remembered, we are plugged into the very source of spiritual life, and Jesus becomes part of us. You know, uh, you know, when I was a kid, we used to play this game. You know, you, you know, it's kind of a funny thing that we did. You know, you are what you eat, so what have you been eating lately, right? Well, in the Lord's Supper, that's a really, it's a very real thing. You are what you eat. You, as you partake in this meal, you are represented in the reality that you are part of God's body. You're part of Christ's body in this world. And that should truly encourage us. We're also given the powerful glimpse of how we are united together with one another. It's not just us individually alone in this world. God has not abandoned us not only in his own presence, but also in the presence of his people. He's united us together with them. If you ever wondered why we call it communion, it's communion, right? We are united to one another by our co-faith in Jesus Christ. It's a powerful thing. And for the heart of the sacrament is a profound spiritual mystery, our mystical union with Jesus Christ. Augustine once said, St. Augustine, that the church is the very embodiment of Jesus Christ in this world. And that's what he means by this. This is how this is possible. In this, we see the fulfillment of Jesus' great promise, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Right? But Paul also warns us in this, in 1 Corinthians 11, that we must examine ourselves and discern the body. Right? It's an interesting thing to be told that part of the warning is to be able to discern the body, and that is to recognize that our union with Christ, but also our union with one another. If you come to this meal and you think you're doing it on your own, or you think you're powerful or, you know, can merit enough to do it on your own, then you're, you're woefully mistaken. This is something that's meant to be done in community. And it's a powerful reminder of that in the warning that he gives. Finally, I want us to think a little bit about the future aspect of this. If you look with me again at here at verse 25, Mark tells us that Jesus says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the wine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, it's an important question to ask at this point. What is Jesus talking about? Well, he's actually making an oath here. Uh, in Acts 23, we were actually told the story of when the Apostle Paul was traveling around and preaching uh, after his conversion. Uh, he came into a particular town, and the people in that town uh, got so angry at him that they took a blood oath. And in that blood oath, what they said is that we will not eat or drink again until we kill Paul, right? So what happens if you don't eat and drink? You die eventually, right? So what they're saying is that we're going to kill him even if that means that we're going to die trying to do it. It's a serious oath, incredibly serious oath. And what we need to understand is that exactly what Jesus is doing here in this passage. This is the night before his betrayal. The next day he will be killed. And what we need to understand is that Jesus is making an unconditional blood oath in this aspect as well. He says here, the Lord's Supper is my blood of the covenant. It is a covenantal promise that he will bring his people to the kingdom of God into the promised land, even if that means that he will die doing it. And that's exactly what he did. 
died doing. The Lord's Supper is not just a sign. It's also a seal. It's a promise. It's a covenant of the reality, of the promises of God that he has given to us in our salvation. And this is not just a kind of a, a, a seal as in kind of the seals around your windows. It's a wax seal that a king would use to seal uh, a command that he has made, a promise that bore all of the authority that he had with him as he made that command. And that's exactly what we see here. All of the authority of the sender of God himself in Jesus Christ has been given to us in this great promise. And these covenantal promises have been actually sealed not with wax but with his very blood. That he will bring those united to him to faith and to their eternal home and to be with him for all eternity. Lord's Supper did not just give us a glimpse of the past and the present. It is incredibly future-oriented. It points us forward that reality of that great hope that we know that we are going to be with him throughout all eternity, that we will be with him at the end of time in the new heavens and the new earth. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. What does when he returns mean? Well, it means the day that he promises that he'll come back to make all things new. And what is he doing when he comes? We are told in the scriptures, especially in the book of Revelation, that when he comes back, there is going to be an incredible meal. There's going to be a incredible feast. It's going to be a great supper to end all suppers. Here is what it says at the end of the book of Revelations in this term. Then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Behold, he says, I am making all things new. Amen. When we get to the new heavens and the new earth, it's going to be a great feast. Why? Because all pain will be gone, all suffering will be gone, all tears will be gone. All brokenness will be wiped away. You will be full. All of your desires will be met in him. And there will be no more emptiness in this life forevermore. So what is the Lord's Supper? Well, one commentary that I read this past week said something that I found to be really profound. And that is this. It is the hors d'oeuvres of our future bliss. It is the hors d'oeuvres of our future bliss. Think about that. For in it, God is giving us a foretaste of the future reality of the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth, that he has promised by his very death and sealed with his very covenant that he will bring us to at the end of time. It's an incredible means of grace. For in it, in the midst of the brokenness and suffering of our world, in this present world, God has provided us with a powerful reminder on a regular basis that this world will not always be the way it is that the suffering we experience in this world will not always be there, that one day Jesus will return, and when he does, he will make everything right. Moreover, it is a reminder of the promise that he has sealed it with his own blood and the substitutionary love for you. And every time you eat and drink the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit actually pulls back the veil a little bit more to give you a glimpse of that great future reality, strengthens your faith, builds you up in him, and then motivates you to continue to live for him in this world. Amen? 
You know, in the movie The Black Panther, I, I watched it many years ago in the movie theater, and uh, it was a really powerful moment at the beginning, uh, was, you know, 10 or 15 minutes in, where T'Challa is uh, on his, you know, fancy spaceship kind of thing, and he is returning uh, to uh, Wakanda, right? And as they're coming in, uh, they come to a place where uh, there's this kind of shield of protection that's been placed around the nation of Wakanda. Wakanda is uh, a fictional African country that has never been touched by slavery or suffering or oppression. And when he flew, when they flew in, the veil was pulled back and you get a glimpse of the glory of a place that's never been touched with the brokenness of this world. And he says in that moment, this never gets old. And I can tell you that almost every African-American person in that room began to weep. Began to weep. Because they know exactly what he's talking about. And I want to encourage you, my friends, that is exactly what we're doing in the Lord's Supper. The Lord is pulling back that veil. And he is calling us to taste and see that he truly is good, past, present, and future. And that he truly will return to make all things new that our hope is secure in him because he himself has given everything, even his very life, to make this promise true. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the opportunity to open up your word. We praise you uh, that you have bound your story together with, with, in such beautiful and majestic and wonderful ways. Even though they are still somewhat of a mystery to us, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see, help us to understand. And as we come to the Lord's table in just a minute, Lord, that you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to see beyond that veil this very morning. And that through that, that you will do something really special by the power of your spirit. That you remind us of your love. That you remind us of our union with Christ. That you remind us of his sacrifice for us that has allowed us uh, to be spared for your judgment to be passed over. And that we, O oh Lord, now have a hope that is secure in him that one day he will return to make all things right. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with that great truth today. And through that, strengthen our faith, build us up in you, knit us together as your people, and then send us out to serve you this very week. For your glory and the glory of your name alone. In Jesus' name, amen.